like for you to turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And we want to finish up the 11th chapter tonight as we study verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. So will you find that place, that verse of Scripture that begins in verse 32. We'll be going through verse 40 in just a moment. There's a great deal of mystery that surrounds the Christian life and that stands to reason because we are a mystery ourselves to some people. That mystery is expressed in various ways. You've heard it said before. I can't believe he's a Christian. That's amazing. I, I can't believe that. Or you mean she's a Christian and said that? Or they are a Christian family and that happened to them? Uh, it's almost as though there are some people who think that the Christian experience removes us from the real world. I think there are four erroneous ideas of the Christian life. I want to mention those tonight. Four erroneous ideas of the Christian life. And these erroneous ideas are, uh, I'm going to point them out in statements that you've heard other people make. The first has to do with passivity. Here's the statement. They are followers of Jesus, so they are always meek and mild and passive. They're followers of Jesus, so they're always meek and mild and passive. Some people have that idea of Christians. It's because, I think, they have a misunderstanding of what Jesus was like. For to some people, the poets and the songwriters... Jesus was kind of a doormat to every man. He was meek and mild and passive all the time. So that Christians never fight. Or they never stand firm. They, they, they're people who never stand against anything or stand for anything. They're just kind of wimps, you know. Now, you don't know too much about the life of Jesus if you think that Jesus was a wimp. Just read sometime of the last week that Jesus lived on earth and he marched into the city of Jerusalem right into the temple and with a card like a whip he, in his hand, he drove the money changers out of the temple and, up and, and overturned their tables and there was this fire in his eyes that just sent them scattering. He had this authority and power. He wasn't a doormat. Second erroneous idea of Christians. That is, oh, by the way, I know you've heard about the Quaker and the cow. That's an old story, isn't it? Some of you are young. The, the Quaker had this old cow, and every morning he went out to milk. And, and uh, so one morning the old cow was in a bad mood, so he just kicked over the bucket, you know. And the Quaker didn't say anything, just calmly got back up and put the bucket there and started milking. And the old cow just put his hoof down on the Quaker's toe. And it was cold. He just ground his hoof in, that Quaker's foot. And he kind of wedged his foot out but didn't say anything he wasn't supposed to. And he sat down to milk again. And the old cow brought his tail around and slapped the Quaker in the face. 
He got up and walked over there very calmly and quietly. He looked at the cow and said, Thou knowest that I cannot strike thee nor curse thee, but I can sell thee to my Presbyterian neighbor and he can. So there are some people that, that think that Christians never strike back, never get, lose their temper. They're just passive. Second erroneous concept. It, it relates to faith, and this is the concept, idea, that because people are people, Christians are people of faith, they never doubt. They never worry. And the person who says that is not exposed to real people. The fact is that every Christian I know has moments of worry and anxiety, and every Christian I know, and I know some great Christians, doubt Sometimes we doubt more than we believe. There are defectors in every generation. There's a third erroneous idea, and that's this. They are Christians, therefore they must be perfect. Almost as if that if I'm a Christian, I'm no longer human. And this belief that Christians always pay their bills... And no Christian would ever cheat on his income tax. And no Christian would ever break the speed limit or any kind of law. And he doesn't drink. And he doesn't eat too much. And, and he is uh, just perfect. The person who believes that is setting himself up to be offended because Christians do sin and make mistakes. And we're not, don't misunderstand, don't um, think that forgiveness is perfection. The bumper sticker is just about right. I am forgiven, not perfect. And if you're looking for a group to join that is perfect, you don't, you know, don't go to the church because we're not a group of perfect people. Fourth, erroneous idea. And that is that they know God, therefore, they are protected from, from hardship and calamity and tragedy. Now, there is no protective shield around the Christian. The Christian will experience financial calamity just like his neighbor. And divorce can come to a Christian couple. And a Christian can be robbed and they can be raped and the Christian can go through the deepest valleys imaginable in life. Bad things do happen to Christian people. I'd like to promise you tonight that, that if you become a Christian, that everything is going to be rosy from now on. There is a theology that is being espoused that if you are a Christian, the right kind of Christian, you will line your pockets with wealth and you'll always be healthy. I tell you, that theology won't preach in Central America. For some Christians will experience deep and dark days and there will be heartache and trouble and sorrow and we will not be exempt from what happens to normal people. What we do have is that we have a power to rebound and a power to respond correctly, what we do have as Christians is hope and purpose and meaning in life. Now we come to our text having understood that there's, these are erroneous concepts about the Christian 
faith and the Christian religion. And Paul says, what more shall I say? It's like somebody is writing on the blackboard and he just kind of turns around and he says to the audience, what else can I, what can I say? He's already described in chapter 11 and we've been five weeks in this one chapter. All these people that have walked with God, what more can I say? For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now these people are real people he's been talking about. These characters in the Bible that he's been talking about are not imaginary people. These are real people just like you and, 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 and me. These are people who, have, who are basically sinners and who are struggling in life and they have sorrow and they have pain and they have red blood. They're real people just like you and me. And what we have in chapter 11 is kind of like the Vietnam Memorial. You can go to Washington, D.C. and walk up to this Vietnam Memorial and there's a, there are names there, 57,939 names of people who have, who have who died in the Vietnam conflict. And what he's doing here is just describing real people that had parents and siblings and, and loved ones and who, who really lived like you and I live in difficult times. And what he's writing here, and don't fail to capture this, is to inspire a new faith in us and a sense of responsibility. And what he's saying in essence in chapter 11 is that these people lived and died in faith and so must we. And these people lived this kind of life and so can we because they're people just like you and me. And he's compelling them to remember. He's not telling them what to remember. He's just bringing their mind with, like an artist in a very um, profound way to call their minds back to remember these men and women who have lived like this. And this is what he said. How did, what characterized their life? What characterized their life was triumph and tragedy. It's what characterizes every life. Now, most of the time, you and I can just, you know, we, we think primarily of the tragedies that come, but life is filled with triumphs, and life is filled with tragedy, and it's true with every person alive. You're not going to get out of this life having experienced no triumph or no tragedy. You'll find triumph, and you'll find tragedy. Well, look at the triumph. Now, there are some passages in the Bible that really do not lend themselves to be expounded. You don't have to explain some things in the Bible. What you need to do is just read it and stand on holy ground. Know that you stand on holy ground when you do. I mean, folks, we're treading where saints have trod, you know, as we walk through chapter 11. And it doesn't need some preacher to get up here and explain what's being said. Just read it. Look at it. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war. They were not passive, letting people walk on them. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. They had triumphed. Oliver Cromwell was preparing, to, arranging for the education of his son Richard. He said simply, I would have him learn history first. 
When you and I get discouraged, we just need to take a walk back into history and look at what God has accomplished in the lives of people in the past. A few years ago, I I visited Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C. It's a sobering experience. Some of you may have been there. There's nowhere you can stand in Arlington National Cemetery that you cannot see a row of crosses. The thing is arranged so that in every point in that cemetery, that national cemetery, and it's a huge place, in every, at every point in that cemetery, you can see down a row of crosses, and each cross represents somebody who has died for his country. There's a, it represents literally thousands who have died for their country. It's kind of like that when you walk through the book of Hebrews. In every place you stand, all you see is the evidence of men and women, God's people, just like you and I am God's people, he, suffering for the Lord and experiencing triumph. It ought to be a sobering experience. There's triumph, but there's also tragedy. Not everybody's life ended in applause. And not everybody's life ended in shout. Look at what happened. He said, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment, a scourging. We, my class this morning, I had a visitor. He's a uh, Sunday school class. This guy was a driver for Trailways bus lines, and he was here for a change of bus and came to my Sunday school class. And I was reading through, and we're studying through, and they got ready to scourge Paul. This guy had sat there and never said a word. He, he said, what's a scourging? A scourging was when they took, when the Romans took people, like Jesus, and they took them out and they beat them with a, with a cat of nine tails. The lictors is called the, the half death or the near death. And if you were a skilled lictor, you earned your way to that position. If you were a skilled lictor, you brought a man to the very threshold of death, but you didn't kill him. Here were God's people, just like you and me. They had mothers and daddies. They had sisters and brothers. They had friends, just like you have. And they'd scourge them. And these lictors would bring them to the near death. And if they were good enough, they'd make them almost die, but not die. See, how horrible it was. They, they experienced scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted. Uh, by that I, I think he means they were tempted to, to flee. They were tempted to give up. They were tempted to say, here's my Bible, but save my family. Here's my faith. Take my faith, but spare my children. Can you imagine what it must have been like to take a little child like we just baptized tonight. You're a child and see that child tortured and murdered by vicious men and women just because you believe in God. And they were tempted to, to turn from that, to give up their faith. They were put to death with a sword. And they went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Can you read this without tears welling up in your eyes. A man by the name of Fox has compiled a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I started reading that, honestly. Uh, I wasn't even able to get th through half of it. It describes 
the suffering of God's people across the years. I want, I've chosen just an excerpt from that book. Listen. It's been said that the lives of the early Christians consisted of persecution above ground and prayer below ground. Their lives are expressed by the Colosseum and the catacombs. Beneath Rome are the excavations which we call the catacombs, which were at once temples and tombs. The early church of Rome might well be called the church of the catacombs. There are, over, there are some 60 catacombs near Rome in which some 600 miles of galleries have been traced, and these are not all. These galleries are about eight feet high and from three to five feet wide, containing on either side several rows of long, low, horizontal recesses, one above, one above another like births, births in a ship. In these, the dead bodies were placed and the front closed either by a single marble slab or several great tiles laid in mortar. On these slabs are tiles, epitaphs, or symbols are graved or painted. Both pagans and Christians buried their dead in these catacombs. When the Christian graves have been opened, the skeletons tell their own terrible tale. Heads are found severed from the body. Ribs and shoulder blades are broken. Bones are often calcined from fire. But despite, listen, but despite the awful story of persecution we may read here, the inscription, breathe forth peace and joy and triumph, here are few. Here lies Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Lawrence to his sweetest son, born away of angels victorious in peace and in Christ. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Jesus' Book of Martyrs. Men and women who knew triumph and tragedy never gave up. You think we got it bad? Oh, mercy. Now, if you haven't been with me, I want you to pick up now and I want to read verses 30 and 39 and 40, two of the most profound verses of Scripture in all of God's Word. Look at this. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, God blessed, loved them. They, they gained the approval, that is, the blessing of God, the joy of God over them for their faith. Now what he's, look at here, notice what he's saying is this. He's not applauding triumph and he's not applauding tragedy. He's applauding faith. Gained approval through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made complete. The word is perfect. It's an unfortunate word there. It, it means to, be, to have their task, their job completed. Now, there are three tremendous truths that just demand to be said from verses 39 and 40. The, the first is this, that each of us must come to terms somewhere in life with our passingness. Each of us must come to terms in our life with our passingness. That is, each of us must come to terms with the transient nature of history, that we're not going to be here long. Time moves on. 
And there was Abraham looking for that city he never found on earth. These men, having been promised, moving out, died before they reached the end, found the promise. Because life moves on and we're not here long. Today's heroes become tomorrow's effigies. And today's concerns become tomorrow's regrets. We are passing from the scene. And every time I get a new gray hair, I become more aware of how short my life, the life I have left is. I was reading somewhere the other day about psychologists that, 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 that made this observation. He said that the reason why there is such, in the last decade there has been such an interest in family trees and coats of arms, you know, everybody going back and finding their roots, etc., is that we are coming to grips with the fact that we're not going to be here long and we're trying desperately to leave something that says to somebody, I've been here. Second thing, verses 39 and 40 say, this is so important, that our labor, our labors are necessary for the completion of those who have preceded us. Our labors are necessary for the completion of those who have preceded us. There's somebody who stood in this pulpit long before I stood in this pulpit. I'm just completing his work for him. There's somebody who sat in that pew where you're sitting tonight or one just like it. What you're doing is you're completing the work he started. Woven into the fabric of this, this church, into the, into the fiber, into the martyr, and into the brick are the people who began a work here that you and I have to complete. And that Sunday school class that you have taken, that you have assumed, is just to take up the baton, the torch that somebody else has passed on. And, and sometimes it just comes over, just overwhelms me. What if we, what if we all quit? It would be just, it would just take one generation and nobody would know the Lord. If, if, if suddenly tonight the gospel was never preached again, you know how long it would take for this world to be pagan? Just one generation is all it would take. So we are, we are necessary. Our labors are necessary for the completion, the perfection of those who have preceded us. We have the duty of making the past a success. And so Solomon completes the dream of David. And Timothy extends the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Dwight L. Moody carries out the outreach of Andrew. Isn't that a shame? These people died before they saw their dreams realized. Let me tell you something more tragic than that. And that is for your dream to die before you do. I hope I die before my dreams are realized. Because the alternative to that is that my dream dies before I do. I cannot imagine life being worth living if a person didn't have a dream. Now, I know some people who've, who've suffered the death of their dreams and they live on. They're, they're really not living on. 
They're just kind of marking out the time, just kind of waiting until the end because their dreams died before they did. Let me tell you what's great about these people who lived in chapter 11. Their dreams were big enough that they outlived them. Now, there are three applications. I want these, then I'm through. The applications are these. Undeserving. Undeserving and selfish Christians often rejoice in unexpected triumphs. Undeserving and selfish Christians often rejoice in unexpected triumphs. Sometimes a guy will say, somebody will say, well, all I want in life is what I deserve. <laughs> Let me tell you, the last thing I want is what I deserve. If you and I got what we deserve, we wouldn't have a whole lot, right? Except a lot of, a lot of grief. But undeserving and selfish Christians often have unexpected triumphs. We, we get those things we don't deserve because God is a God of grace. Second application. Godly and great Christians often suffer through unexplainable tragedy. Now, if you're one of those who happens to believe that if you serve the Lord and if you have faith, you, no problems will ever come to you and you'll never have any uh, financial problems or you'll never have any sickness or no tragedy will ever come to you if you're living for God, what are you going to do with chapter 11? Because godly and great Christians offer, often suffer through unexplainable tragedy. No one can unravel the mystery. Who can explain why it rains on the just and the unjust? It's just the way God does it. And there's some things that we don't have an explanation for. Third application. Both extremes. Those are the extremes I've just defined. Both extremes tie God's family together in an uninterrupted history. Now, I need to explain that a little bit. Both extremes tie God's family together in an uninterrupted history so that you're going to follow the flow of history all the way from Abraham to the end. And you're going to find this happening again and again and again that selfish, undeserving people have blessing and God's glorious, righteous people have tragedy and it just keeps on being that way till the Lord returns. For that's the uninterrupted plan or process of life. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see tonight how today is linked to yesterday. And how my life is tied to the life of men who lived thousands of years ago. Who tried to serve you and died doing it. Who shut the mouths of lions and had great victory. And that it's the same now that God help us to see that, that it's an uninterrupted 
process that goes on and on. That we're to live the same way they lived. We're just, just like them. Help us to stand firm where we need to stand firm. Help us to yield where we need to yield. Help us to be God's people in this day so that when people in centuries that are before us look back, they can say the same thing about us as we said about these people. Grant that, Father, for us because I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. Now I want to give us an opportunity to make public a, any kind of decision that you feel God leading you to make. There's some who may need to come just as these children and adults in the last few weeks have come professing faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know how to tell, how to explain it any way other than just to say that you and I, we've sinned against God and God made provision for that sin and that need the person of His Son, Jesus, His only Son, that He was a sinless man and died a death in Calvary to satisfy the demand of a holy God for us, that He took our sin there and by our faith in Him, our trusting in Him alone, the repentance from our life where we've lived independently and rebelliously, turning to Jesus and to God by faith, trusting in Him, and laying all of our hope on Him, all of our sin. Or maybe you need to come tonight to join the church, to place your life here, rededication of your life as you've felt a new inspiration through this reading of the lives of others to, do, to live for God in a, in a more committed and faithful way. Whatever, you'd have, whatever God would have you do, that would be our encouragement and our prayer while we stand to sing.